Well, good, good morning, everybody. It's great to be with you because you are a church that supports the work of Cedar House. And so my first job this morning is to say thank you because without your support, our work uh, couldn't carry on. You'll see a few slides just rolling around as I speak this morning. And on top of that slide, there's a scripture from Isaiah. And it talks about binding up the brokenhearted, being called to those who live in ashes and bringing beauty from that. And that verse from Isaiah 61 is one of the verses that our founder, Hazel Sewell, um, had when she started Cedar House nearly 20 years ago. Um, Originally, Cedar House was set up to support women, women who were... um, at a point of crisis because they had a pregnancy um, that they didn't know what to do about. And that was a real struggle for them. So Cedar House offered that support at that time that was difficult for them and supported them through that, whatever their decision was. Um, That was nearly 20 years ago. Very soon after starting, Cedar House realised that the need out there was so much greater than just ladies with crisis pregnancy issues. And so the service very, very quickly developed to offer counselling to, at first, just women who were coming with a variety of issues. So that might be a woman who had a relationship problem or it might be somebody who was really um, anxious or depressed. Um, But then we realised there's another part of the community out there that might need some help. And we were being approached by men as well. And many years ago, our logo was that of a weeping woman. We soon had to change that because um, Cedar House now sees around um, 40% men to about 60% women. So we've realised that actually you guys out there um, need some help as well. Um, So at the moment, Cedar House is a charity. Um, We don't get any funding from the NHS, and we um, exist on donations, both from churches like yourselves, from our clients if they're able to give a donation, but also um, from other churches in the area, other individuals give us money as well. Um, I have to say, we've been £20,000 in deficit for the last five years and have been supported by another charity. You might have heard of Methodist Action who run Fox Street, the community in town centre for homeless people. Um, But unfortunately, they're pulling out of supporting us from the end of August this year. And that £20,000 that we've been in deficit that they've covered for us is no longer um, a buffer for us. So one of the reasons that... um, Um, here is to say please continue that support that you give to us as a church we really really do appreciate it Um, I know that there's some people here that do support Cedar House we have volunteers from Cedar uh, from St Stephen's that work with us at Cedar House Um, so I've got a couple of leaflets with me and at the end if you want to hear anything more about Cedar House I've got a leaflet that just tells you a little bit more about what we do and the sort of people that were able to help with counselling. But maybe you're not looking for counselling help, but you think, actually, this is something that I'd like to get involved with. I've got another leaflet. It's got a picture of of where we are on the front. Just a a little... I think one of the photos here is the front of our building. A little terraced house in the centre of Preston. 
And this tells you a little bit more about how you can help us at Cedar House if you would like, and how you might be able to volunteer with us. That little house there has three counselling rooms. And in those counselling rooms, we hear the troubles of people's hearts. And we can start to offer uh, our help to bind up those broken-hearted people. We're a voluntary service. There's only two paid people at Cedar House. Uh, everybody else, including counsellors who have trained for a number of years, um, come to Cedar House and volunteer their services to us. So that's just an incredible testament to their generosity of spirit. And they will sit alongside a person as they bring their troubles and help them work through those issues. Now, counselling isn't about um, saying, well, here are the answers. I know what you should do. Counselling is about helping that person to understand the issues that have affected them through their life and grow in that and to find out why that makes them feel the way that they do and then perhaps process those feelings and emotion and move on to be able to better deal with life in the future. It's not the answer for everybody. We know that the mental health service um, is there as well to help people that have uh, more significant problems. But we do see, because of cuts in funding um, within the National Health Service, that Cedar House is actually getting people coming to us that have more um, worries and more um, mental health diagnoses than we've seen in the past. So our, the need for our service is growing as well. We, last year we saw uh, about 330 brand new clients that had never been through our door before and that on top of existing clients meant that throughout last year we probably saw about 450 clients um, and that is we're open Monday to Thursday 9 till 8 in the evening Friday we're open 9 till 5 and then on a Saturday morning we're open 9.30 um, till 12.30 and so we, we have lots of opportunities just three counselling rooms but in that space there's so much hurt and pain that is brought it is a Christian work and we I have to say we're not there to evangelise or to make people follow Jesus that's not at all what we're there for and we couldn't work ethically if that was our motivation so we are there to support people and show them the love and compassion of Christ in as much as we can through the work of our counsellors and the supporting welcomers who do just what it says they welcome our clients into Cedar House and show them something that is different we're really blessed to be supported by this church and I just want to thank you again. Thank you for giving me a little bit of time to tell you a little bit about Cedar House. I pray that if you do need, you feel that there is something you would like to talk about, come and have a word with me and perhaps direct you in the way of contacting Cedar House if you're looking for counselling. But maybe if there's somebody here that's thinking, actually, I'd really quite like to get involved with that, might not be a counsellor, but you might be able to help us with welcoming, which is just one of those amazing things that makes such a difference to our clients. So uh, please come and ask me for one of the leaflets afterwards. I'd be really delighted to speak to you. And thank you so much for your support. Thank you. Thank you, Matt. With you. Very good, are we? Great stuff. Father God, may the 
meditations and thoughts of my heart and mind, may the words of my mouth be glorifying to you. And may they encourage the assembly of saints gathered here this morning. Amen. Amen. It's a privilege to come and speak to my church family this morning. It's a privilege also to come and speak to you on such a great passage from such a great book in Scripture. And this passage is one with, for me, lots of power and lots of gravity. And for some of us, it might be the first time that we've properly explored it and looked into it. And I hope that is the case. It may be a moment and a mark in your Christian life, an epiphany that helps you to move forward in your faith. The book of Romans is respected by uh, scholars, whether they're believers or not alike. It's a, a, a great piece of work in ancient antiquity, a great piece of sort of rhetoric. Uh, and Paul has started uh, trying to demonstrate the righteousness of God, and that's the overarching theme of Romans. It's all about the righteousness of God. And the passage that we have today is the third stage in that argument. The first stage in that argument is um, Paul demonstrating that everybody, all of humankind, has fallen short of the glory of God. Not one person has met the standards of God, and therefore we're all condemned. But in his second stage of the argument, he explains how God has sorted this out. He's resolved this problem in, in regards to our condemnation, how he's made people right with himself and that's called justification and this third part of the argument that we're looking at today is the implications of that what does it mean when we've been justified let me tell you about a girl in my school we'll call her Courtney for namesake Um, Courtney she's a year 11 she's in the final year of high school and she's been excluded from half a dozen different high schools in Blackpool on the account of her poor behaviour. She spent most of the past six, five to six years sort of floating around corridors uh, or being in sort of little sort of seclusion units or inclusion units within the schools in Blackpool. And as a result, she's... There's a massive gaping hole in her education. She can't... She doesn't know her ABC. She doesn't know her left from her right. She can't tell the time. You know, she couldn't read a watch. Uh, she still counts on her fingertips. Uh, it, it's really tragic. It's scandalous how much she's missing in, insofar as her education is concerned. Uh, and even in the pupil referral unit that I fit in, her needs are so great, uh, we, we struggle to find a unit for her to work in. And being the lowest common denominator in our service, I got her. And um, even I struggle with her behaviour. And after about a week, I said, right, Courtney, I'm putting you on report. And every hour of the day is minuted, all the good things that she's done and all the bad things that she's done. And when will I be off this? Uh, when will I, I be, once I've got a full week of good behaviour out of you, you'll be off it. Well, week one went by... Week two went by, four, five, six. It wasn't going to happen. And I sat down uh, last week and said, you know what, Courtney? 
I'm wiping this clean. And I threw this big folder of reports in the bin. I said, I'm not going to count the things that you do wrong anymore. And guess what? This last week, no difference. <laughs> no difference. Anyway, why am I telling you that? Because likewise, there is a ledger in heaven. There's a list for all of us, and our name's on the top of it. And all the good things and the bad things that we've done in life is being recorded. Okay, imagine that. And sadly, uh, our, the bad things that we do in life far outweigh the good things. We're permanently sort of in that overdraft insofar as meeting God's standards. We're permanently in the red and we're powerless to do anything about it. But God justifies the believer. And justification means God wipes that slate clean and pronounces the believer, those who put their faith in God in the work of Jesus Christ, as not guilty. And so it's the language of the courtroom that we're looking at here. We're declared not guilty, we are justified. And our justification happens in an instance, the moment that we give our lives to Christ, the moment we put our faith in him. Uh, Justification is the opposite of condemnation. But it's not just a, a change in our legal status. It's not just something that we're going to benefit from when we go to heaven. It's not, as I said in house group on Tuesday night, pie in the sky when we die sort of material. It's pie now whilst we live. Okay? When we enter into a relationship with Christ, we're blessed by all sorts of things. And this passage tells us that we're blessed with peace. We're blessed with access to God, with hope. We're blessed with the love of God. We're blessed with the Holy Spirit. Salvation from judgment and joy. So this passage is all about what we can expect in our lives when we are justified. It's about the contents of justification. So my first subheading is we have peace with God. Once we were all enemies with God. Now, if enemies is too strong a word for you, let me use a posh word. Once we, there was enmity between us and God. There was a gulf between us, our sinful nature, and God's holiness. And the Bible describes it that we were at war with God. But verse 1 tells us now, now we're at peace with him. And as verse 10 and 11 goes, goes into, it says that we've been reconciled. Um, or to use another word for, for reconciled, that, that we've, there's been an atonement between us and God. Atonement's really interesting because we understand it with that at-one-ment with God. We've been made one with God through faith in Jesus Christ. And this peace remains. It's not fleeting, even though we still sin As believers, this peace stands firm with God. We stand before God in his generous grace. Now this is important because justification happens in an instance when we put our faith in Jesus, but our Christian walk, our growing more like Christ, our pursuit of holiness 
It takes a lifetime. And that's a process of sanctification. But with our status as being fully justified in Christ before God, when we sin again, that, that status doesn't change. We remain in peace. Verse 2 says we stand in this grace. And it's all because of what Jesus has done on the cross. Shortly when we get to 10 and 11, God, uh, Paul's going to explain how and what method God did this by. Second point is that we have a great and certain hope. Paul goes on to explain what our perspective should be now in this post-justification state. He says that we now we can rejoice, or in uh, the pew version it says now we can boast. And actually boasting is probably the best word to use. It's more than rejoicing, it's boasting. Now we've been warned in previous chapters in Romans that no man, no person can boast about what they've done to get close to God. And it's exactly the same word now that he's using here, that we can boast in what God has done. We can boast in what Jesus has done for us. We have a great hope. We have future glory in heaven. Now, it's not hope like we use, like we use that word in the English language. It's not wishful thinking sort of hope like I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow which would truly be wishful thinking because uh, no doubt it will when we read in the bible the word hope we're talking about a sure certainty that has yet to come so if you think about the sun rising tomorrow well we're not there yet we, we can't concrete that But without a shadow of a doubt, the sun will rise tomorrow. And that's the sort of hope that Paul's talking about. And that's the sort of certainty that we have as Christians. That's the hope that he's using here. And Paul says because of this hope, because of this certainty, we can rejoice. And not only that, we can rejoice and boast even when times are difficult, even in our suffering. Now, just because we've become a Christian doesn't mean we're going to be spared from life's pains. None of us are going to testify to that. You know my life and the difficulties I've been in and gone through, and I know many of the difficulties that you have gone through in your lives. Life is a struggle. It's hard. It's tough whether you're a believer or not. No one's excluded from those difficulties. We all live in a fallen world. But now we're friends with God. Once considered enemies, we've shifted our allegiances. And if we're friends with God, we're now enemies with the world. And therefore, as Christians... Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount in the Beatitudes, we can expect persecution and two forms of persecution. Uh, Persecution for righteousness sake and persecution for his name's sake. And if we try and live like Christ and speak like Christ and do the things that Christ would do, we'll stick out. And it's no surprise that Christians will get a double dose of suffering 
in this world. Now, that might be counterintuitive to the idea of how is that going to strengthen my hope and my certainty in, in, in the gospel? That, that sort of level of double sort of dosage of suffering should really shatter our confidence in all this. But Paul says the opposite. He says, no, we can rejoice in it. We can rejoice in it. And that's the new perspective that uh, we've, we've got in God. Paul says we can have confidence, confidence in this hope in Christ. And he explains it through a chain of cause and effect in verses 3 and 4. You see, suffering, he says, produces a need and creates an opportunity for us to enjoy. I keep telling Courtney at school that she needs to have resilience to keep picking herself up, to be mentally tough and, and to just to carry on and to keep carrying on. And we're told here that we as Christians have that spirit of resilience the spirit of resilience that produces character, character that stands up to the test, character that, that stands up to examination. I heard a story about a Christian pastor in uh, China, when China was far more of a closed-off country than it is today. Um, and he was arrested for being a Christian. He was put in a labor camp, and he was singled out, and his job on camp was to clean the camp latrines out and every day you'd crawl into the cesspits and he'd be up to here in muck and effluent, uh, effluence and he'd have to shovel all this stuff out. A terrible job and he was ostracised from the camp because no one, he smelt, no one wanted to go near him. Um, but every time he went down into that pit, the whole camp would just hear him sing praises of joy and celebration. And one day, someone was bold enough to say, why is it when you go down there in, into that horrible pit that you seem like you're having a whale of a time? And he says, because when I'm down there, I'm with my Lord and my Saviour, and I'm praising him. And that's remarkable, isn't it? And it's not... It's, you see, suffering in times of trial, suffering, you know... it. It's like a muscle, this hope that we have. If we don't exercise it, it grows weak. If we don't use it, it grows weak. And so it's no surprise that in, in places around the world, some of the most vibrant and spiritually spiritual alive churches are in places where there's extreme hardship and extreme danger for calling oneself a Christian. I, I sense that there's a a spiritual poverty in this country because quite simply we have it far too easy in the UK Paul says that even in trials and tribulations we can rejoice now in the present not just one day in the future my third heading present and absolute confidence so how can we be confident in this how how do we know that this is well-founded and not just wishful thinking? How can we be assured on the final day after a life of, of sacrificial living, of trying to live more like Christ, that we're not just going to end up with egg on our faces, that we're going to be disappointed, 
Well, Paul explains in verses 5 to 8, it's because of, of God's love and particularly the way he's demonstrated it to us. Our hope will not disappoint us. Our hope will not put us to shame. Why? Because when we became a Christian, God placed his Holy Spirit inside us. And that's an inner voice that if we listen to it, will constantly remind us that we are his children. The Spirit's given to us so that we can have access to, to God the Father and we can call out Abba, Father, Daddy, Father and know that we'll be listened to. Paul explains and demonstrates that by looking back to the way God demonstrated his love to us through Jesus' saving work on the cross. Put this into context, Romans chapter 1, verse 18. The wrath of God has been revealed from heaven against all the godlessness of wicked people. Imagine a person. They're an upright person. They've never gone over the speed limit. They've never taken a pen home from the office. They've never told a lie. In the eyes of the law, be it legal or moral, they're classed as righteous. And Paul says, well, it's a rare thing that someone would die for them. Imagine another person. They're kind and they're gentle. They give to charity. They're just a a pleasure to be around. They're described as good people. He's a good person. Maybe. It's exceptional. Maybe someone will die for them. But Paul's pointing out here it's rare that people die for others. Out of love for either of these two types of people. Furthermore, who would sacrifice themselves for someone who is morally or legally corrupt? Who would sacrifice themselves for someone who is described by everybody else as being a horrible person? Who would do that? And that's the point. And it's exceptional. And here's the shocker. That this is exactly what God demonstrated through Jesus Christ on the cross. That when we were powerless in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ, as Ephesians 2 puts it. And that's a cause for surprise. And it's so not like the love of this world. We were willful rebels, we were aliens, we were estranged, we were enemies of God. And yet, despite our weaknesses, despite our ungodliness and sinfulness, God loved us. And he loved us enough to die on the cross. And based on that fact, we've been reconciled with God. Therefore, how much more sure can we be that on that final day, he will save for fourth point, future glory. And this is the final link in the chain of Paul's argument. Paul says that we can have certainty that we're destined for future with God. Absolute certainty because of the certainty of what occurred in the past on the cross. God will not neglect those that he has made righteous through his son's death. In one sense, our judgment day is in the past. All our past, present and future sins, that list with our name on it, that ledger 
has been wiped clean, washed clean by Jesus' precious blood. And that was a hard job to do. And let's not forget how difficult it is to wash the sins of the ungodly there on the cross, to suffer the wrath that was ours. And if that hard job has been done to reconcile God and mankind, how much easier will it be for God now to swing open his doors and let us in on that final day? The hard bit was done on the cross. It's easy for God to save people who he has made righteous, who he has justified in faith. So in closing and in application, how should we respond to this? Well, if God has given us peace with him, therefore we now have access to him. And we remain standing in this grace and in this presence. Verse 11 tells us we can boast. Verse verse 11 tells us we can rejoice. We can boast in what the Lord has done for us rather than what we have done for ourselves. Even in suffering, nothing is going to take this joy away from us. Our hope is steadfast. It's firm and not rocked by the ebbs and flows of life or the pains of persecution. And God has proved this on the cross. And so we wait confidently for the day of judgment, knowing that he will save But this peace of God is not a state of mind. And some of you might be sat here today thinking, I don't feel very peaceful uh, considering the things I'm going through right now. It's not, this peace of God is not fickle like our own minds, but rather it's a change in status. We are at peace with him. We are at peace in him. Now the devil loves to tell us that we haven't done enough. You haven't prayed enough. You haven't read the Bible enough. You haven't given enough. And therefore God's displeased with you. He's the great accuser. And many Christians fall back into that habit and that pattern of life where they feel like they haven't done enough. All has been done for you. All has been done enough. Remember and trust in the grace that God offered us on the cross. All has been done for you. Whitney Houston once sang a song called The Greatest Love of All. The greatest love of all. I think... I'm not sure that was helpful, was it? No, you're going to get some more customers. Um... It was about Whitney's search for a love that she could find. And the song sort of unfolds that the greatest love that she found was the love for herself. Sadly, Whitney's story unfolds into a vicious cycle of drink and drugs which ended up tragically in her death. It was tragically untrue that the greatest love of all was the love for oneself. But God's love for you, on the other hand, is infinitely greater. Infinitely greater than any love that anyone could offer you. Infinitely greater than any love 
that you could offer yourself. And in accepting that love, in understanding how unworthy we are, and yet we receive this grace, this love, the doors of heaven are generously wide open for you, held wide open for you. Don't believe, despite your state of mind, that you're unlovable. Don't believe that you're undesirable because Christ's blood shed on that cross proves that you are lovable and that you are desirable. The devil wants to make you feel low, wants to remind you of your unworthiness. But remember the Holy Spirit, that still small voice that cries out, he that is within you is greater than he who is outside Keep looking towards the cross where love is marked in history as a proof of God's peace, his love and reconciliation for all those that believe. It's beyond doubt how much God loves you. Beyond doubt. And this is such a powerful message in this world where love is all too conditional and ethereal and flitting God's love is unconditional and never diminishes Amen Let me pray